Hi, this is uh, Tony Silva. And Charles Wiz. And it's Two Teachers Talking. And uh, this is number 145. And uh, today we've got something different again. Um, Charles sat down with um, a couple of uh, program coordinators. And um, George Trescott and uh, Nathaniel Nat Rudolph. And uh, they talked about what? <laughs> exactly. What did you, you guys talk about? Uh, you know, the usual things that people talk about. <laughs> so, actually, it was something you and I had been talking about for a long time, which was to get the viewpoint from program coordinators, because you and I both have uh, various opinions about coordinated programs. So we got George and Nat together, and you know, we kind of just talked, and I was interested in really seeing you know, how do they see their jobs? How do they see their responsibilities? Um, you know, what are the factors affecting their day-to-day work lives, basically? You know, how do they, how do you navigate between part-time teachers, administration, Japanese staff, for example, right? What, what's going on there? What kind of problems do they have? How do they approach their, their jobs? You know, is there like a specific philosophy they have about working with people or towards coordinated programs? And it kind of, you know, just went from there. And they were both able to really explain things. But um, I'm going to just throw it a personal side, Tony. Every time I do one of these, I find out it's really hard to interview people. I am in awe now of people who can really do great interviews because I find that it's just, it's hard to do. It's hard to focus, help, you know, focus the discussion and uh, really be able to feel comfortable. So it's a new thing. But, you know, as that aside finishes, it was really interesting to talk to both George and Nat, uh, especially in terms of their commitment to, you know, not the program so much, but their commitment to people and education, you know, to the students, to their part-time teachers, because that's the main thing that um, coordinators really do have to deal with is managing or administrating programs, administering programs to part-time teachers. So that's really basically it. I'd rather the discussion you know stand for itself stand by itself without really coloring anyone's opinion so i think we should really just get into it i think i think you're right i think that's good i think one of the things that i found interesting about it was how um it was just the direct question didn't come up but it was interesting to listen to see how it was difficult for people to even define the job (laughs) because it's so complex and there's so many different pieces and so many different ways to do it um so listen for that okay let's go all right hello this is charles Wiz and two teachers talking and today we're not going to be having tony silva with us because i happen to have two guests who i'd like to and have them introduce themselves. So, our first guest is George. George, why don't you introduce yourself, give your full name, and just uh, tell us, like, very briefly how you got into education. Sure. Uh, my name is George Truscott. Um, I've been teaching in Japan now since, oh, the early... The Meiji Restoration. Yeah, quite a while. 
I don't want to say it because you'll you'll be able to extrapolate my age there. But um, I came to Japan originally, uh, sort of for adventure, and uh, worked in Neikaiwa like many people do, and um, realized that that wasn't a particularly you know, promising career. So I went back to graduate school and then entered the university system in Japan. And eventually um, I, got the, um, I got the opportunity to apply for a full-time job. And luckily I got it. So um, that's in a nutshell my story. Okay, George. And how about your background, university, you know, your education background? Um, I went to the University of California in um, Berkeley, had a degree in economics, and uh, I worked in business for 10 years or so and uh, came to Japan again just on an adventure to um, teach at Neikaiwa. And um, then it just, you know, continued on from there. Okay, thanks. All right, and we also have Nat with us, okay? And please introduce yourself, Nat. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name's Nathaniel Rudolph, and everybody calls me Nat. Um, I've been in Japan off and on since 2002. Um, originally came over with my wife uh, from, from the U.S. Uh, to teach a year or two so that I could go back to grad school and become a history professor. And when those things sort of fell through, um, I ended up doing a master's degree uh, at Temple University. And this was kind of a follow-up to my master's in history. And then um, around that time, um, got into university work. Originally, we, my wife and I worked for an Eikaiwa, um, but then into part-time university work. And that's actually when I met George uh, back in 2005 or so. Um, and from that point, 2008, um, I went back to the U.S. and uh, did my Ph.D. at University of Maryland uh, College Park and then came back. Uh, in 2011, again, with my wife and uh, two daughters, um, and have been a full-time uh, university, would hate to say professor, but instructor or researcher practitioner. Come on, you're uh, a professor. Sin since 2011. Uh, yeah, so, just say, I'm a professor. I'm a professor. And, and with George now for about a year and a half at, at our present school. Okay, and what's your PhD in history, or did you change to a different subject? Well, my, my PhD is in language education and culture, um, which roughly translates to sociolinguistics. Okay, and the reason we have George and Nat with us today is because they're coordinators, they're program coordinators, and a lot of their job, a significant amount of their job, or some of their primary responsibilities, is making sure that programs run smoothly and that... The programs have goals, objectives, which one would hope, and act as a liaison interface, actually, between the school and the part-time staff, because part-timers make up the bulk of the language teaching programs at almost any university in Japan. So you guys have like a wide range of responsibilities. And I think one of the things is that people don't really get to hear what it's like for a coordinator. Uh, we talk a lot about what it's like for the teacher's experience, how the teacher's perspective of teaching, engaging with administration, working with students, and how that affects who we are, how we present ourselves, and the strategies, tactics we use to accomplish what we want to do as educators. 
But I think it's a very, very different kind of world when we look at what educators who are coordinating or and slash or administering programs are doing. And that's a great perspective, since that's why um, Tony and I thought it would be great to have both of you here. And okay, that's a wrap. <laughs> so mm. we're done explaining. Okay, so let's start with this, um, George and Nat. You're coordinated. What does it mean when, you know, if you people ask you, what do you do? And you say, well, I coordinate a language program at a university in Japan. How would you explain that to someone who, let's say, is not a teacher? And how would you explain that to someone who is just becoming a teacher? Because I think any, you know, experienced teacher will have a general idea. Well, I'll, I'll take the lead on this one. At um, our university, we're divided up. We have uh, native English-speaking coordinators, full-time people in various majors, various faculties. And um, I guess one of the things we do is manage a group of about 20 or so um, native-speaking teachers, qualified speakers from all over the world. And um, we create uh, simple programs that, that teachers can follow with specific goals. For example, in the first year, it's to, um, you know, get a sense of using what they, what they developed in high school or junior high, um, make it more academic because they're in university now, um, upping the ante a little bit. And, um, you know, we, we do a lot of, I think Nat would agree, we do a lot of problem solving um, when issues come up. And there are plenty of them because we have issues with students and teachers, issues with administration and teachers, and uh, also problems with um, students in the administration. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we have to troubleshoot. So we do a lot of troubleshooting issues like that. Matt? How about you? Sure. Well, I can talk a little bit about um, my previous position and coordinating there. Um, and this will shed a little bit of light on how the idea of coordinating is very different depending on context. Um, depending on the department or uh, faculty that you're a part of, uh, the coordinator role can be everything from being the translator or being the so-called foreign face to uh, interact with international faculty uh, as a go-between or even a go-between between the university and um, part-time faculty. Uh, to be the first line of so-called defense, um, whether it be part-time faculty are, are struggling with issues um, or students are struggling with part-time faculty or the university is struggling with part-time faculty or faculty are struggling with the university. So to be situated in that kind of the interstices of um, problem solving. And that, um, so, so that was an experience that I had um, really being that individual. It's not always that way. In fact, Sometimes, for example, Japanese isn't necessary for the coordinator role. And so using Japanese with, uh, you know, staff or um, other faculty members may not be required in a, in a position. Um, so my previous university, it definitely was. Um, where George and I are at now, uh, we definitely connect with other faculty in, um, in English 
But I would say that our particular place, you know, Japanese is a very important part of our professional、um, identity. And oftentimes,、uh, part time faculty are not comfortable with using Japanese.、Um, and so we、uh, play that role,、um, not necessarily、uh, You know, delivering messages from the university, but just kind of assuaging some of the fears that teachers have or、uh, empowering them to be able to get through paperwork more quickly.、Uh, but this is not to put、um, folks who have studied really hard and who are very you know, comfortable in Japanese down.、Um, but generally, our job is to just、uh, make sure that things are smooth. Um, so, that there's a smooth line of communication between faculty and administration. And as George mentioned,、um, you know, our kind of our,、uh, section of the university is divided between Japanese and international faculty. So, just ensuring that messages are communicated successfully and being the person to be a peacemaker, but at the same time, stand firm and communicate. Uh, when there's an issue that we see arise on one side or the other. One, one of the main things that I think I try to do, Charles, is to give information out to the teachers. And I do a lot of this.、Um, I'm sending out a lot of informative emails about schedules,、um, start dates, reminders, paperwork that needs to be submitted.、Um, I do, this, I do this for a couple of reasons. One is I think that it keeps the, the teachers in the know. They feel like a part of the team. And the other thing I want、um, for me personally is a little bit of plausible deniability so that if teachers do drop the ball, I can say, hey,、um, I've sent several emails about that.、Um, you need to be a little bit more careful.、Um, let's get going. So, but a lot, of, a lot of what Nat and I do is sending out emails. Uh, we send out a lot of information to our teachers because, again, we're the, we, we get the information from the university, and our job is just to give it out to the teachers. And I think we do this pretty well. Well, I know I always appreciate it when coordinators do that. I've worked at places where you know, they just didn't do anything, and you had to you know, click on websites and find things by yourself. So, what you're saying is that one of your you know, responsibilities is to provide the part timers. Who are in your program with the information, knowing dates, times, what kind of documents are necessary? Hey, make sure you know this, that this form has to be put in here. Okay, here is the date we're going to be having tests and things like that, change of policy, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm going to guess it's kind of a thin line between sending enough emails and too many emails and not enough emails, right? Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, because I know people who will complain about getting emails、um, from. You know, the schools they work say, hey, I'm getting too many emails. Or some people go, I don't get enough emails. So, again, it seems that for, you have a clear idea that your job is to make sure that any information that is sent down the pipe to you that is related to what a part time instructor needs to do, whether it's getting grades in or how to grade or,、uh, for example, enrollment lists,、uh, closing dates for. Dropping courses, et cetera, you provide that. Okay, so that's like a basic idea, I think. But let's move a little bit away from the nuts and bolts kind of admin side. That's more of the admin side,、mm, I think. Right. When I think, and that's one of the reasons why when I talk with people, I don't say you're administering a program. 
uh, I actually use the word coordinating because I see it as more actually working with on the people side. So let's start with um, philosophies. Everybody has a philosophy, right? Uh, what's um, let's start with Nat. Nat, so what's your basic philosophy about like a coordinated program? Because there's a whole range of like just you know laissez-faire, let the teachers do anything that they want, versus you know we're going to tell you guys everything what to do. Where do you fall in that spectrum? And, sure. Uh, Sure. That's a wonderful question. Um, <clears throat> I think this question could go a couple of ways. And one would be when you're a coordinator situated in a program wherein your kind of ideas about education and goals for, you know, what, what we do in the classroom, who students are becoming uh, in the classroom, that, that may or may not align with the larger program. And so you're in this situation where, on the one hand, uh, you're charged with promoting perhaps approaches to testing or textbooks or roles that teachers are given that you may or may not agree with. Um, and so there's kind of a fine line there, um, negotiating space uh, for agency. And then on the flip side, um, toward part-time faculty, um, my philosophy is um, trust. On the one hand, I want to trust our faculty members. Uh, they're trained. The, the majority of them are trained professionals. Um, so I do want to provide them space for autonomy uh, and to, you know, draw on their own identities and lived experiences and, and those of their students, which requires some flexibility in what, you know, what is done in the curriculum. On the other hand, there's the issue of um the parameters the department has put into place and kind of the expectations that like it or not, again, um, we have to pass down to part-time faculty and also having um, kind of an identity, a program identity um, maintained or participated in uh, by part-time faculty, whether they you know like it or not. So what I'm speaking of here is, for example, in our program, uh, it's not necessarily a well-defined program in terms of identity and goals for interaction. However, uh, there are requirements in place, for example, the use of a textbook or extensive reading. And so these are things that we um, require. And at the same time, we want teachers, again, to have autonomy, space for you know agency in the classroom. So finding mm -hmm. that uh, fine balance and understanding that some teachers – are going to put hours and hours and hours into what they do. Other teachers are looking for the most convenient way to maximize lesson plans at multiple schools. And we understand that, of course. Um, and then teachers who, you know, maybe are not so interested in teaching, if we're honest. Um, but it's, you know, it's a paycheck. Now, I give That's every... a small percentage. It's <laughs> really a small yeah. percentage of the people I know. Sure, sure. Fortunately. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and so I think, you know, again, I default to uh, teacher autonomy and um, trusting that, trusting in their professionalism. And I think George would back me up on this uh, by saying we deal with things when we see them come down uh, the pipeline in terms of, you know, issues with professionalism or whatever. But we're not heavy handed in telling teachers, this is how you must perform. This is what you must look like in the classroom and so on. So I think trust is a 
is, is a really important thing. And I think a lot of um, part-time faculty struggle actually with the issue of what degree, to what degree can I actually trust this full-time coordinating teacher? Uh, and part of this stems from maybe not having an idea of what our role is and who we're representing or to what degree they can, for example, have a personal friendship and at the same time a professional relationship with us. So, um, but, and, and so trust is a real issue. It's, it's something that, uh, that, that we work on. Um, in ongoing fashion, trying to find a balance. I want to come back to the trust issue maybe a little bit later, but I want to also get hear from George on you know your perspective. Yeah, I mean one of the one of the reasons I mean Nat came to my university uh, just um, a couple of years ago, and um, his philosophy fits perfectly in with mine, and that's one of the reasons why one small reason why he was brought on. The other, of course, is that he's very qualified and um, he's very gifted. Um, but my feeling too, is that we hire people who are professionals. We look at their, um, education, their training, and we believe that when we hire them, they're fully capable to do the job. Um, but if not, it's our job not to come down heavy handed, but to correct and help them figure out what it is they need to do in order to work within the parameters of our program. And as Nat said, we, we, we allow a lot of autonomy. We have very few requirements that we ask our teachers to do um, because we basically trust them. We say, you can supplement. You know your students best. As you teach, you need to shift gears and figure out ways in which that you can be successful with your teachers. Um, but we'll only, we'll only interfere really when um, we see a teacher who's not fulfilling their job duties, the job description. Um, but yeah, trust, autonomy, these are key issues. And the other thing that, that I try to help or I try to instill in our teachers is that um, they don't really need to worry about the university coming down on them because if they do their job, and I think they are, Nat and I have their back. And we will fully support them um, for whatever. And we always tell the teachers, please don't worry about that. Um, I think you're doing fine. You don't need to be defensive about that. Just keep on going. If any problems happen, I've got your back. I've got you covered. So we want to support our teachers in that way and provide a kind of supporting atmosphere for our teachers to allow them to do what they do best. So one of the ways you're building trust is by supporting them, right? Watching their back, so to speak, being clear about this. Um, it's interesting for me because I work full time, been a coordinator, and now I work at a university. And one of the things I always feel when I've taken part-time jobs almost everywhere except for one school where they were just over the top in terms of, you know, controlling everything. But even then, I've never seen a place that said these, except I, I, when I coordinated a program, one of the things we did is we worked from the concept of exit proficiencies. By the time, you know, students are done with this class, students will be able to do A, B, C, D, and that will be measured at the end of the, the semester. 
And for me, I keep asking people, you know, what are the exit proficiencies or what does a student look like who has gone through first semester freshman English and second semester freshman English? What does that ideal student look like? And in most programs, people can't tell me that. And for me, that's one of the reasons that I struggle as an educator is that, right, it's your school. What are you doing? Tell me what. But I can't – if I don't know where you want me to take the student, no matter how much direction you give or how much freedom you give, I feel like I'm not really being able to do my job because it's your school. Mm. Otherwise, leave me alone 100% and let me do what I want. And, you know, I've seen it go both ways because um, I am full-time. I hear part-time teachers say things. And I've also heard other teachers say that they don't like coordinated programs. They want to have complete autonomy. And I get into trouble because I've said, look, you know, if you're going to go teaching like in your field, a third year, fourth year, even a second year, third year, fourth year class, that is a special class in your field. Yes, that's what you're hired to do is you're hired to completely design that curriculum for that class, the syllabus, everything. But this is a university wide course, for example. And I think it makes complete sense to say that, of course, there's going to be coordination and unification. Mm-hmm. So the, I guess the question I'm asking is to um, two pronged. One is, do you think that teachers should be coming into programs and that they should come with an understanding that, hey, you're working as a part-timer in a general education course that has been designed by the school, and so there's going to be certain things you need to do. And number two, do you think it's necessary to give people very clear outcomes, whether you want to call them learning outcomes, goals, exit proficiencies? What do you think? Or should you play it somewhere in between? It's a great question. Uh, As I always say, of course it is. Did you ever, do you remember Monty Python on the Holy Grail? <laughs> you guys have watched that, right? Yeah, of course. You know the scene, you know the scene where God comes out and says, Arthur, Arthur, King of the Britons, <laughs> I will give you a task to seek the Holy Grail. And Arthur says, that's a good idea. God says, of course it's a good idea. <laughs> anyway. And um, feel free to lighten up with any great little stories you have, too, guys. But anyway, I just am um, going off because I love movies, and Tony and I are always making <laughs> references there. So, George, yes, run ahead with my great question. Um, what I was going to say is that when I first started working at my university, we didn't have these kinds of um, exit, exit proficiencies or targets that's, you know, learning targets that students would have um, because it was. It was sort of a one-size-fits-all kind of philosophy where we were teaching various students from various majors at the time, and um, it wasn't clearly defined. And since then, the university that I worked at has divided this language um, gakabu, the, the, language, the language department, and they've put the full-time teachers in various departments, uh, various faculties, and we sort of continued on with that. Um, so I don't really have any clear, or we don't have any real clear um, exit goals or anything for our students. But one of the things that I tell my students, or my teachers, in fact, is that I really want it to look academic. I want the program to, to feel like a university class. And I think Every teacher who's been to a university knows that kind of feeling. 
And we want our students to be challenged, um, to do a significant amount of work, but the specific goals can be made. Again, this is part of our um, philosophy of giving autonomy to our teachers. That can be that can be done by the teacher, um, based on the textbook that they use, what the goals they see in the book, how they want to teach it. Um, that's sort of our philosophy, I think. Nat, can you comment on that? Yeah, I I think this is a really special conversation that we often don't have. There there often aren't spaces to have this type of conversation. Um, just to share a little bit about my own kind of personal philosophy to explain what I'm about to say. Um, so I'm very much um, a believer in the idea that there are many ways to be or become a user of English or to be a member of Japanese society or to be Japanese um, or to be, you know, a global human resource, kuro obaru jinzai. Um, and so as a result, that, that affects kind of the things that I would hope that students would experience, kind of exploring uh, movement and change and diversity and hybridity in Japanese society and kind of our historic uh, historical connections to other places, um, and and the fact that you know when we talk about this idea of there being many ways to be or become Japanese, we're kind of challenging this homogeneity narrative in Japan. Um, quite often, you see programs where people are talking about English as a lingua franca, uh, so they talk about diversity and complexity outside of Japan. Uh, but they rarely touch on diversity and complexity in mm. Japan. So um, for me, my interest is in highlighting these different things. So attention to context, to who's living and working and studying in Japan, to who uh, our students will meet when they graduate in their communities and in their workplaces, um, the majority of whom are Asian. Um, and so that's where I'm at. But the reality is, is that most programs are set up on this idea or predicated on this idea of idealized nativeness in English and idealized Japanese-ness. And so the idea that Japan is homogeneous, the idea that, you know, becoming successful as a learner and user of English means to be white and Western, North American or British, um, which is a really hard conversation to have. Um, and so the space that we're in now historically has been that sort of program. And many of the teachers who were hired uh, were placed into categories based on that, Japanese or native speakers, right? And so I have my own philosophy for what I hope for in the program, but then I see how things have been structured you know, socio-historically, and then I see, you know, kind of the the beliefs and behaviors of part-time faculty, which, you know, may or may not align with this idea of idealized nativeness in English and homogeneous Japan. So the idea of um, asserting my own um, philosophy into the situation, I think we can speak into conversations about you know, who students might interact with in their communities and who they might meet professionally. Um, but one of the challenges here is the idea of when you're problematizing these things, um, 
Of course, there's pushback, but the program itself is set up that way. So the majority of textbooks, for example, um, are set up focused on this idea of idealized nativeness um, in English. Um, and so it's not necessarily for me, it's not necessarily about, um, you know, talking about one specific issue, for example, textbooks, but it's more about the entire kind of philosophy or ideologies that guide what happens in a department. So what do I do as a teacher with these beliefs in a space that is basically set up in a very different way or, a, you know, a polar opposite way? And I think dialogue is key. So sharing, sharing ideas, connecting, challenging some of those borders that have been set up between Japanese and international faculty in terms of full-timers, um, between our, ourselves and administration that have historically been, you know, established a certain way. There are patterns of communication between us. And then also challenging some of the borders between part and full-time faculty um, in terms of our role, in terms of our um, relationships. And then connecting with teachers and just sharing a bit more with them. I think... Um, it's not, as you said, Charles, earlier, it's not necessarily about administration only. If we want teachers to be, you know, involved in a program, there needs to be dialogue. Um, so dialogue is a really important thing. It's hard to find time to bring people together when they're full-time, let alone when they're part-time. Mm. Um, but I find myself, to sum everything up that I just said, find myself looking for spaces for dialogue uh, to to share and to listen and to to build something with full time faculty and also with part time faculty as well. So, yeah, I th think that one of the things you mentioned the idealized speaker, mm -hmm. and one of the issues I've always had is this idea of idealizing fluency. Mm -hmm. You know, and expecting people to become fluent speakers in a second language when they, you know are basically learning it in school. You know, it's like saying, you know, everybody's going to become a professional golfer, right? And I have never been at a place that realistically, and this is, it's, it's my opinion, and it's bouncing, you know, between my being a coordinator, full-time, part-time, and seeing myself in general as a pain-in-the-neck kind of educator kind of person. But, you know, to realistically look and say, hey, this is the level of students we have. Okay, let's let's be honest here. This is a level of university because you know you can go all the way up to like you know something like Todai, okay. Um, and I've taught at really, really, really good schools. I'm very, very fortunate, and I've also taught at some very lower level schools. And Tony and I have talked a lot about just school culture. Mm. And there's a, often I know a mismatch between what I'm supposed to do in a program and the reality of the classroom, which is insanely like I'm sorry. There is nothing connected between what I'm experiencing in the classroom and basically what you kind of have wanted me to do. Absolutely. <laughs> and I had this terrible experience. Yeah, it was the other day. I was teaching. And three classes, I gave an assignment, and everybody turned in exactly the same answer. You know, I had asked, you know, what is what is this field study? What is this what is this field study? What is this field study? And every student basically turned in the same answer because they had gone on, watched the video, turned on the closed caption, paused it, wrote down the words and submitted it, okay? Mm -hmm. 
there was obviously no interest on the part of the students in actually learning. Now, this is really different from, you know, the students who, like the other day, a student said to me, hey, Mr. Wiss, what's the difference between how about and what about? I'm like, well, uh, well uh, an English question for the first time in 20 years. Uh, <laughs> the, oh, this is a surprise. <laughs> but I've had students who have stayed after class and asked <clears throat> engaging questions. <clears throat> the reality is for a lot of part-timers, and this is – I've talked to some other people too and they really feel it – is that – What's coming down the pipe from the school via the coordinators, let's say, does not have a lot to do with the actual experience because what ideally would be accomplished would require students to be putting in what we would consider a reasonable amount of study time, three, four hours a week, right? For a 90-minute class, you're supposed to be studying three hours, right? That's right. So I want to throw that question out to you, and I'm also going to throw out my big gripe. <laughs> I, I'm a firm believer in – Nantuka across the curriculum, right? Writing across the curriculum, manners across the curriculum, <laughs> but things like note-taking, basic study skills. And I want to just say that, you know, for, um, I'm coming in this devil's advocate kind of position. How would you respond to the things I've just said, you know, about that mismatch between what the school wants and what actually is going on in the classroom? Because sometimes I get so frustrated because – you know, I think like any teacher, you go in and you think I can transform, I can create a transformative environment and help kids inspire, right? Because I don't believe in motivating, but I think you can inspire. Mm. But and then you go through and like you get three classes worth of copied work. So run with that for me. Let's um, take it to the next level, maybe, and um, see where we go. I was just going to say, Charles, that I often ask my students, "Do you think you'll use English?" Later in life. And a small fraction raise their hand and I say, I think, I think that's probably, you know, maybe two or three students might say yes. And most students don't say they'll use English. And I'll say, yeah, I mean, let, let's be realistic here. Your mother and father studied English. They probably don't use English. Your aunts and uncles probably studied English. They don't use English. Probably most people that you know, your senpai, your, your seniors who have gone on to work don't use English. And um, sometimes I think that the university puts this um, artificial uh, emphasis on English when it, it, it really isn't there. It's like the emperor, you know, wearing a new set of clothes kind of thing. I mean, we all know that that, you know, it's not it's probably not all that important for most students. Most students will, they, especially in my department, because we're in a scientific department, they'll, they'll, get through, they'll get through the class and um, they say, well, they, they need to have lots of English because they're going to need to read research papers. But most of them will probably never read English papers um, in their field of study. They'll study it in Japanese or they'll look at the translations. So, um, I'm just trying to make it a part of their academic experience. And, and the other thing that I was going to say, too, that, that I thought of as, as we were talking before is that I want to try to give students some ideas of how to learn English if they need to. And that might be to read simple books. Um, they can do things on their own to improve their English um, 
And I'm trying to expose them to these kinds of things as well. I'm going to just uh, approach that, you know, George, with this argument I've been using recently, and I don't want to go off. It's been the thing I've been talking about a lot is I think with machine translation, Mm. I think language teaching is finished. I think it's obsolete is my thing, I believe. And my argument is that it's all Latin now. For the same reason you'd study Latin for the mental discipline, for you know improving logic, critical thinking, and appreciation maybe for an old, you know, older texts and understanding the beauty. I think that the practical reasons actually for using English might be going away. So that's um one of the things. So, but you're talking really that the real goal, really, in some ways, is that the recognition most of you will not use English. And I would just think the student's attitude is, of course, and it's clear to me that I get this from the students, is then it's like, I know, I know. I don't know why I'm here. <laughs> I'm not going to use this. Why am I being forced to learn it? So that's another side to that. Nat, you want to take um, your take on this? Sure. Like I said before, this is really an interesting conversation to be able to have. Um, so as I mentioned before in my own kind of personal approach, um, I really – think it's important to think about context. So who might students interact with and what sort of knowledge and skills and experiences might uh, benefit them in that space, uh, whether it's in Japan or it's interacting with people overseas. So if we just take Japan for a moment and we imagine that the majority of our students will be here interacting in Japan, perhaps multi modally, you know, by email or something. But the majority of conversations will actually happen in Japanese with other internationals uh, living and working and studying here in Japan. Um, and it may involve English as well, and perhaps Korean or Chinese, uh, you know, or, or other languages, Vietnamese, for example. But I do really think it's important if we say the focus is not on English language education, but on the idea of uh, being and belonging, you know, being a member of a community and really looking at what that means and what that might mean to students personally and professionally. So exploring things, as George said, beyond simply, quote unquote, teaching English. For me, it involves talking about lingua franca Japanese or, you know, translanguaging where you know, borders of language and culture and, and place and community are being crossed in conversations. And that conversations are more like a borderland space where people are coming together from different backgrounds and kind of negotiating meaning together. Um, these, you know, these types of conversations for me are really important um, because, yeah, students may not engage with so-called internationals from other places um, in English, but certainly they're members of a community that is characterized by a certain degree, depending on context of, you know, diversity and complexity. So better understanding what members of their community are experiencing, um, better understanding the idea of being involved in a community that actually, like it or not, transcends the space that we live in. So the local and global being intertwined, but perhaps not doing so in English. And so the goals for me, um, like George said, talking about history, talking about, um, I'll just give it some labels, okay, history, anthropology, mm -hmm. um, 
you know, applied linguistics or sociolinguistics, incorporating conversations that are relevant to students' lives and that, you know, creating learning experiences where they can draw on their uh, lived experiences and also kind of um, think about what's coming in the future in terms of where they might live and work and so on. So those things are important to me too. English, is, is English the global language? I think that's a serious problem. And, and we see that every day here in Japan where, you know, most of us spend 90% of our day in Japanese. So, and I don't know. I spend almost all my time in English. Okay. <laughs> school because I'm teaching yeah, English all yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm wondering, I want to go back, George. So, I mean, George, I've known you for a long time. And you're one of the most, I, without a question, one of the most passionate people mm, I you. know about education and teaching. And, you know, I've always admired you for that. Yeah. And um, now that it's said, I'll tell you what I really <laughs> think. But seriously, <laughs> I'm just wondering, though. So what would ha- – you know, you go into the situation and let's say you have somebody who disagrees with you, let's say, right? Um, and just says, no, I'm going to go in. I'm just going to teach grammar or – right? Instead of just this wider viewpoint. How would you – because there are people like that who will say, hey, my job, I'm just going to teach vocabulary. I'm going to give my vocabulary test every week. I'm going to teach the grammar. I have no interest at all in you know anything that, Nat, you've said about identity, communities of belonging. Um, and let's say you believe in more of you know the English language classroom, I think, as being, for lack of a better word, a more globalized learning environment that allows for experience and engagement between the teacher and the student, the students and the students to, for lack of a better word, again, enlighten them, open their minds, expand their minds. How would you deal with that situation if you had that kind of mismatch? Would you just let the teacher go? Or No, I'd probably discuss it with or? the teacher. Um, mm-hmm. I can't let that go. Because um, that, to me, is a kind of throwing in the towel by the teacher saying, you know they're gonna they're gonna teach by the number, and I think that that takes the joy out of what we do in the classroom. And you know, I, one of the, despite what I said before, I mean, I understand that students may not need English, um, they may not even like English. So one of my jobs is to make the class interesting, challenge them. Every textbook has little things that you can jump off on. Um, you can, you can find little, little things in a textbook. There was, there was one that I just saw, um, this past week about vegetarianism. And I asked my students, what, what, how do you feel about that? And what is a, a vegetarian? And, and I asked them, do you know what a vegan is? And, um, you know, there, there are different levels of what it is to be, you know, um, a plant eater or a vegetarian or whatever. And my students were really interested in that. Those are the kinds of jumping off points that I think that if teachers don't latch onto them, they're, they're really missing it because that's the joy of teaching is when you, and I think Nat, Nat talks about this a lot with his students about opening up their, their world, um, creating a wider vision of how they see things. And, um, you know, I want to I want to expose them to various things. They don't necessarily have to take my point of view, but I want them to think about it. Um, these might be LGBTQ issues. It might be 
um, eating disorders. It might be um, whatever it is that the textbook is bringing out. Um, we can find these things and we can talk about them. So the teacher that says, I'm only going to teach grammar. I'm only going to teach my vocabulary. I know what I'm doing. I sort of think, wow, no, you've got to be flexible. You've got to be able to shift gears and go off on tangents in the classroom and get your students to think critically about what's going on in the world. You know, it's my rejoinder on this one. I think mm. if that's the right word, <laughs> you know, is I, I agree. Um, and I think, George, we've gone back such a long time. We know that we were always trying to bring these things into the classroom way before mm. it was even acceptable. I mean, recently um, within Japanese universities, like I think at the last five years, it's been a fantastic opening up to concepts that just were, you know, basically obscene 15 to 20 years ago. And that were questioned whether or not teachers had the rights to bring these into the you know language classroom. But what about the teacher says, okay, George, fair enough. I really want to teach those things, but my students can't even string a sentence together. And they've been studying for six years of English. What do you really want me to do? I'm, you know, I'd say there's a mismatch. Or Nat, I'd say that to you too. You know, what, what do we do in this situation? Sure. Because I think that's the maybe for some part-timers, is to say, yeah, yeah, I understand what you're saying, but you're giving me students that can't do that, and there's no support. But see, Charles, I would right? say I would say so, all students can do it. And I think it's the job of the teacher okay. to figure out how to pitch the class to the students. Um, so I'm, I'm, okay. I, I would disagree that that's, that that's, um, that's a target that students cannot get at. I would say that, of course, they can. They can, they can get there, and it's, th this is what makes teaching such a joy, though, is when you connect with students who are at a low level, but they don't see you as an enemy or somebody who's trying to shove something down their throat that, or, or learn something that they're not interested in. When they see you as somebody who is intelligent, who has different perspectives, and can um you you snickered when i said intelligent charles that hurt my feeling no i'm saying I, I i don't think you know there's a certain place i teach and i'm really convinced my students really think i'm a moron an idiot mm. <laughs> i really do <laughs> well they might have a point do, there you know <laughs> huh? they might they no they i'm just saying that they have a point i'm just saying but that i'm just saying that there is there's never i one of the things that i've never and I never will do, is throw in the towel. A lot of teachers say, it's no use. Um, they're not going to learn it anyway. They hate English. Just give up. And I'm never going to go down that. Okay. Let me approach mm -hmm. it in a different way then. I teach full-time, and my relationship to the students at that school is radically different than my relationship to students when I teach part-time. It's very, very different. You know, when I'm at the school, I can see them. I have an office. They can come meet me. I have – and honestly, too, there's just a lot more authority mm. as a full-timer. Where And when I say by authority, what I mean is that, you know, I there's less fear. There's You know, you have more of a safety net. And I could turn to a student and say, hey, you know, come on. Let's get with it, man. 
You know, what are you doing here? You know, you're wasting your time, for example. You've got, you've got gifts. You've got talents, you know. But when you're at a place one time a week and you're limited and naturally if you're at a place one time a week – you know, you're giving, you have limited resources. I think it was, we worked once with someone, George um, Cunier once, who at a meeting once said, I'm I'm called a part-timer because you only get part of my time. <laughs> and it was hmm. like, yeah, it was like, everybody's like, well, I yeah. wish I'd said that. <laughs> yeah. But what I mean by this is I want to go back to the coordinator thing because I think you and Ned are talking as teachers, classroom teachers, right, not as right. coordinators. Again, mm-hmm. we've moved away from that. And that's why I'm playing this devil's advocate thing as a part-time teacher working at your school wants to feel rewarded, wants to be able to do that, goes into the classroom. There's a mismatch between what is ideally possible and what's not. What is the coordinator's role in that situation? How do you approach that? And what would you consider to be the ideal coordinator's response? And what would be an unacceptable coordinator's response? Because, again, I want to move away from classroom, what you guys are doing in the classroom, to what you guys are doing as coordinators. Yeah. So let me give you this problematic teacher, which is, by the way, as a part-timer, I hear it a lot. No one ever says this to me as a full-timer, by the way. Mm. You know, it's really interesting when I'm in the part – and it's a side – I'm going sideways here, segueing. But here's something that I've also found out, and I don't know if you guys feel it. But once I became a full-time person, I was never treated the same way. I couldn't <laughs> hang with the part-timers. You know what I mean? There was – I was fine with it, but they were not. And all of a sudden, once I became a full-timer, the amount of feedback I got about what was going on with the part-time teachers mm-hmm. went to zero, basically. They wouldn't tell me anything. But when I'm at a part-timer's room at a school, it's a very, very different experience mm-hmm. to hear what people have to say. So that's why yeah. I'm coming at it from this, let's say, yeah. part-timer working at your school saying, hey, I'm sorry, there's a mismatch between what you're telling me is possible and what I actually see in the mm-hmm. classroom, right? Mm-hmm. What do we, what do you, what, what's your role in that situation? Can I, can I just say approach? one real quick thing here and then I'll give it to you, Nat? Yes, you may say one um, real quick. Thing. We worked at a school a long time ago, Charles, and we were sort of, you know, we were told to give feedback. And when we did give feedback, the full-time teachers your just up. said, well, you must not be doing it correctly. You must be making a big mistake. So it was all, instead of, instead of critiquing what I was hoping to make changes in the program, um, they threw it back on me saying that I was the failure. And what I want to enable the teachers to do that work at my university and who work with Nat and me is to say, hey, you can throw rocks and we'll listen. And if it's not working, let's find a way to make it work. What What will work for you? And so I want to be open to the teachers not having a great classroom experience because they may not sometimes. Um, so th- that's a, that's a fair criticism. And I, and I know what you're talking about, how when you're a part-timer, you hear everything. And when you're a full-timer, you hear only the good stuff or, or you hear only the greeting. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, George. How are you today? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Talk to you later. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, George, I remember that school. And that we'll get back to you in just a second. Um, 
Because I, I think, George, you reminded me of the story where you actually said I actually pulled you over and said, George, never do that. Yeah. Remember? I think – yeah, because that was a place I remember where I was actually told, well, you're obviously unprofessional. You obviously have no qualifications. Somebody actually said that to me. So, of course, naturally, that built a lot of trust. <laughs> but I think we're you know, that idea, right? You want people to be able to come to you is I think everybody wants that. But what can coordinators mm-hmm. really do? Because I'll tell you, um, here's a question that no one has ever asked me, right? Which is, Charles, what do you need me to do to help you achieve peak performance in the classroom? Never in my entire – what strengths do you bring? What skill sets do you bring Mm -hmm. that we can use, that we can optimize in the classroom? Now, when I – of course – Yay, I'm I'm tooting my own horn. Naturally, that's what I did when I coordinated my program. That was my exact question to people. What do you need me to do for you to achieve peak performance in the classroom? Because that's how mm-hmm. I define my job as a coordinator. So I'm going to say that I think people have good intentions. But I know that I work in a situation um, like, you know, my main job where, you know, I think nobody's ever asked me. Or uh, we we had a whole programmatic change in the language program, and nobody actually went to the part timers and said, "What do you think? What do you think we need? What should we do?" They everything was top down. But these people, I think, would probably say that they're sensitive to the needs of the part timers, right? So I just want to, mm. you know, I'm playing devil's advocate here, and also because you know I feel like you know, hey, I don't work for you guys, so I can say this, but also, you know, there's a fair degree of trust here, and it's important, I think, for the listeners to hear this side of the conversation because this is this is the conversation that goes on behind closed doors, maybe that they never see and get to hear, right? So, what do you think, Nat? Well, that's a it's a really <laughs> that's a hand grenade. <laughs> it, it's it's a broad topic. Um, so a few things. Um, First of all, I think it really depends on what school you're at and how the role has been defined past, you know, and in in the present in terms of who the coordinator can or should be, right? Um, so uh, if I have control over the curriculum, if I have, you know, a lot of influence over writing syllabi and designing the the program itself, then on an official level, I'm able to communicate more of the intricacies of what we might expect in terms of approaching the classroom. But if you walk into a program and you're a new coordinator and the program, you know, the backbone, the backbone of the program is use textbooks and teach English. And that, that is the backbone of the program, not necessarily talking about my present workplace, but you walk into a program where it's been defined by other personalities and ideologies and things like that. Um, it's often a challenge on an official level to talk to teachers if things have not been clearly defined. In other words, uh, if the parameters of what professionalism look like have not been well-defined, how can you enforce that? Okay, um, On a personal and professional level, if somebody were to ask me, how might I incorporate these things into the classroom or how might I approach these things differently, then certainly I can speak into that situation. But I really do think um, there's a big difference between what is official 
and enforceable and then what is not, right? So something basic like you must use a textbook, you're not using a textbook, use a textbook. You know, that's one of those bare bones um, kind of enforcer things. But if we're talking about uh, enriching a classroom experience or something like that, if it's not built into the program um, and it's not what the teacher is doing is not necessarily, um, you know, anathema, to what's going on in that program, it's more challenging on a professional level to say, well, I don't like how you're doing this, or maybe you should think about other things um, because it's not well-defined. And so in that situation, trust and dialogue is a really important thing. Okay. My, again, devil's advocacy here thing. Mm. Because I've, you're, you're very good at the devil advocacy approach I'm it's really good. At this. I'm really good because basically, I'm just a, I'm just a pain in the neck. You know, bring that, it, George. Um, bring it, bring it. Um, so again, I feel fortunate that I've been on both sides because I was a coordinator, then I wasn't. Um, and you, you know, I look at most coordinators and coordinated programs, and I'm like, oh, God, you've got to be kidding me, really. You're running this program, and this is how you run it. Um, and I don't work for you guys, so I can't make any comments on. You how might your say it for us too, goes. Charles. <laughs> yeah, um, I think the idea for most part timers, and I'm thinking from the part timers' perspective, and again, is nobody asks part timers anything, mm. right? Yeah. Don't say, hey, because, you know, first off, okay, nobody wants to go to meetings. And then you go to meetings and people talk at you and talk at you and talk at you. And then you can't say what you want to say because you're really scared that the coordinator is going to sure, get upset at sure. you. And, you know, I'm just wondering about how can those part-timers who, again, you know, you know, George, I think now, I don't know, George and I go back to the yeah. 90s, I think, right? you know, coming to Japan when you just needed a BA and it didn't matter what your field was and you could get a university job easily without any teaching experience. And now if you wanted even to be part-time, you know, you're going to probably need a PhD, right? Which of course I always say to people is, I'm sorry, I don't understand why mm. you need a PhD to teach, you know, oral English one, right? I think it's overkill. But what I'm saying is that maybe – Part-timers, I think, and coordinators have such different viewpoints because there are – just most of the people I know, again, are reasonably really good people. I know some people who are incredibly nice people, but you got to say, you know, you are not made for this position. This is not the right fit for you. What can be done so that there's more um, – the dialogue – but there's more of that dialogue is coming from the part-timers to the coordinators. That's the biggest weakness I see in programs most of the time. And what do you think, you know, does that, how important is that? Does that play? Do you think in the dynamic of coordinator and part-time teachers? That's a wonderful question. Yeah. Um, George, I'll take this maybe. Um, so if 80%, you know, at most universities in Japan, 80% or so of faculty members are part-time, they are the face of the university, 
right? They are the university. Yeah. They are the university. <laughs> and so to deny that and to put on your website the faces of 15 people and say that that's who we are is ludicrous, right? But, but, but Nat, so the question, it's done. <laughs> but it's done. It's crazy, but, it's but, done, but we're out there. So one are of you the, guys on your school? We're on, we're on our website. Sure. Are you and your school brochures? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I think that the question around the world becomes, how do you build a relationship between, you know, part-time and full-time faculty, incorporate them into, you know, vision making, uh, into curriculum development and things like that, um, and then this opens up conversations about how the boundaries between full-time and part-time have been created in Japan. And, of course, this depends on the school. But it also brings up things like compensation. Compensation, um, you know, if somebody is doing this for free, uh, that's pretty uh pretty much a ridiculous expectation. So there are lots of things that come on to or that tag along with this idea of, okay, what does community building look like? But I, like you said, Charles, the conversation is usually um, between part-time faculty. Maybe it trickles up to uh, full-time faculty members if they um, have some sort of relationship. It often never transcends boundaries. So, for example, what the part-time internationals are saying never reaches the ears of the full-time Japanese faculty, which is uh, which is a real issue in itself. So, we treat people as two separate, you know, symbiotic categories of of people. So, I, I think the real question is: How do you do that? How do you community build? And taking into account all of the extra factors like compensation. Another one is, what is the role of the coordinator? Are they a face? Are they someone who's been given the authority to shape curriculum and things like that? Which is then, you know, makes their job much easier of dialoguing about how a program could be improved or what expectations are realistic or not. Um, my previous school, I had much more, um, quite honestly, much more kind of authority to change things year by year than I do at the moment, where the program basically hasn't changed since the, the, the uh, dawn of language time. university was. <laughs> right, right. And so it's a really different situation. And that's something I think if I were a beginning teacher or a teacher who's just kind of moving into uh, university work or looking to trans kind of um, transfer into full-time work, this is kind of one of those realities is how is your role going to be defined? The bounds of it and are they transcendable? Are they expandable? Things like one, this. One more thing, Charles, okay. and this is an issue that Nat and I have talked about a bit is marginalization and how – and I just talked about this with – I, I work part-time in another university and I talked to this about – about another coordinator there. And we were talking about how the language schools are making inroads into universities. And perhaps the universities are thinking, and, and I know they do this with office staff all the time. They throw bodies at work and they say, um, just figure it out. And I think they look at teaching English and 
throw a native speaking body at it and let somebody else coordinate it like a company with, you know, strict coordinated lesson plans. Um, and that may be the, the awful situation that language learning is going to towards in Japan. It's sort of scary that it'll be taught by people who are untrained unprofessionals, but that's happening all the time. And, um, one of the jobs that we have is to is to try to advocate for our teachers saying, no, what we really need is professional teachers who are trained, who know how to do it, and we give them the autonomy and the freedom to do what they know what to do best, and we tear them loose. And hopefully the students have a good reaction to that. They have a good learning experience. Um, this, is, this is sort of, I think this is Nat and... And my approach. Yeah. And Charles, to add one kind of final thing, um, you know, George, hey, I'll vouch for him. He's one of the sweetest people you'll know. Ain't it the Um, truth. (laughs) And, you know, many people consider, many of our part-time faculty consider him a friend, but he is also a supervisor and there are you know, professional boundaries in place. And this becomes an extra kind of complex part of what we're doing. Um, How, to what degree can a teacher be open and share with us? And where do the bounds between personal and professional lie? I think one thing that we haven't talked about at all um, tonight or today, wherever you are, um, is this idea of um, the on the one hand, being an advocate for part-time faculty, which is incredibly important. At the same time, we're also charged with being advocates for students and for our colleagues in our department and for the university as well. And I think sometimes the balance between those things is misunderstood by full and part-time faculty in terms of who we are and how much we can be trusted. Um, There's a lot of things that George and I are not allowed to share not able to share um, with uh, part-time faculty. Um, We have to kind of guard the integrity of our co-workers in the university itself, but also be transparent with teachers at the same time, which is a a challenging balance. Another thing is, um, as you mentioned earlier, Charles, this idea of talk between part-time faculty and can be rumors professional, but it can also be, you know, directed personally. And many of those things we're not able to address. We're not able to tie up these loose ends in conversation. And I think this is one of the challenges of being a coordinator, in addition to the administrative, in addition to the um, talking about teaching and and advocating, is um, this idea of playing a role where you're standing on the one hand looking into the university and policy and you're dealing with, you know, the the Office of Human Relations or whatever. And you're also looking at your other full-time colleagues and then you're looking at uh, students and part-time faculty all at the same time. I think that's a really important point and that's what you know we're trying to really get at is that you guys are walking a very thin line and yes. it's 
There's a lot of things. And, you know, I know that I'm not a coordinator, but at one point we were going through a uh, curriculum change. And I went into the part-times room, just going to kind of, you know, try to tie this up and say just how weird I think it can be as a full-timer. And I asked, on a scale of zero to five, how many of you understand the curriculum change that has been communicated to you? And almost everybody gave it like a one. They just said, we don't understand it. It's not clear. We don't know where it's going. Or we haven't been able to give opinions. Um, there's no feedback mechanism. But mostly, you know, there's just not enough information to really understand what, what's going on. And when I went back to somebody at the university and said, by the way, I just want you to know, I was just talking to the part-timers and I asked, you know, very informally, they said, that's not your job. So I think what happens is that as a a coordinator, what you want to be able to do is very different from maybe what the school will even allow you to do. They're just like, sorry, that's just not in your portfolio. But you're like, "Uh, excuse me, uh, this is really essential. No. And – you know, also the things you can say, the things you can't say. You know, it's kind of like being how the computer, you know, you've got this uh, contradiction and it's going to explode. So the goal here was at least to introduce and give, you know, our listeners some exposure to this like really weird life that a coordinator lives that is not, you know, it's definitely not, I think in many ways, definitely not the best job in the world. And it takes you away from, if you're a classroom practitioner, it really takes you away from, you know, the classroom and, you know, people trying to do their best, but given all the, the limitations. And I think what I've gotten from you guys is that what you want to do is actually limited by the structure of the position, the culture of the school and the institution. And that you said something that I think is really key, which is what went on before you got there. Absolutely. Because you're inheriting a lot. You're not starting from scratch. You're not saying, ah, I get to hire all the people I want and create the atmosphere, right? Absolutely. Charles, we're also, I was just going to say that another issue that I confront constantly is this idea of student as customer. And, and how we have to please the student and how the student, if the student complains, we have to fix that complaint. And I always say the student is not a customer. We must decide what we do in the classroom. And this is where I said before that I have my teacher's backs. If teachers complain, but or if students complain, but teachers are doing good stuff in the classroom – maybe demanding a lot of their students, I'll support that teacher. Um, I don't, you know, a lot of a lot of the administration just, I think, automatically takes the side of the student. They're the customer. And we must please them. And we must graduate them in four years. And I tell my teachers all the time, no. Um, students have to do a reasonable amount of work. They have to reach that 60 barrier, which is incredibly low to begin with. And then if they don't, if they're a 59, that's horrible. Do not pass them. We do not want to allow for um, mediocre work. We want to push our students to do more than that. So this this uh, student as customer thing is something that I face within the faculty and within my peers in the faculty. Um, It's really... um, 
it's difficult and frustrating. Well, that's mm. another podcast. <laughs> and that's something, you know, we've um, gone back and forth. Um, that's the one thing. I think that's the stupidest idea I agree. ever. What's no question. Whoever came up with that idea is just, you know, because, there, you know, there is the nuance, the difference between a customer and a client. The client, you can say, I need you to fill out these papers. I need you to provide me this information. And if you don't, I'm not going to continue to provide you with the service. But, yeah, this idea of a student is customer because you want to say, you know, show me a situation where somebody pays to work. Hmm. Anyway, but that's yeah. part of, you know, again, what you're doing as the coordinator is creating that baffle so the teacher doesn't have to hear that side of it. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's about one thirteen, which is a pretty long podcast for us. Um, Matt, final words. Mm, yeah. That, okay. Thank you. <laughs> you. Said it all, Matt. My my final word would my my final word would be this: um, if if you are going to end up in a position like this, uh, you really are standing in a borderland space. Um, that you know, depending on the school that you're in. Uh, you're walking into a position in terms of how you're viewed categorically. Uh, so if I'm an international, most likely I'm not coordinate, coordinate, uh, coordinating Japanese faculty, for example. Um, there may be, you know, an established relationship between the so-called internationals and the Japanese faculty. Um, Understanding the position that you're walking into, understanding the boundaries of what the role is and what you're expected to do and finding spaces, finding relationships that you can, you know, seek to transform that position is really important. And also, um, being sure, uh, George mentioned throwing a body at something, but I think making sure that you are not out on a ledge on your own. So if there, for example, are problems with part-time faculty, I can't get into this, but I can tell you I've lived through this um, where there were issues uh, with, a, with various part-time faculty members, and the university sort of put me in the stopgap, uh, which legally, professionally, physically was a dangerous space to be in without support from the university. So ensuring that when you make choices, um, you know, as a, a coordinator, that you're aware of, number one, the position that you're going to be in. And number two, uh, that you're not doing it alone that you're in dialogue with someone in the space that you're in. So for, for George and I, it's the academic affairs representative in our section who communicates with us and also the uh, Japanese uh, coordinator for, for teachers. I think this is really important. It's something most people don't talk about, uh, but not all coordinator jobs are the same, that's for sure. Okay. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Well, one George. thing you said – before Charles, that I thought was sort of interesting is you said it may not be a very good job if you're if you're concerned and, and you're a, a classroom practitioner, and I would say no, it's a very interesting job um, to be a coordinator. Is is um, you know I can I can make some decent changes. Hopefully the the part time teachers that work um, with me um, see me as a colleague and somebody who's they're, they're, we're all working together for the same thing. Um, 
again, I provide a lot of, Nat and I provide a lot of information, and we can sometimes, and we do, butt heads against these ideas of student as customer, or um, the students the students don't understand because uh, they the, the teachers don't speak Japanese. And I'm saying, well, of course they don't speak Japanese. We want them to speak English. We want to give them that that English input. Um, the students the students need to be aware that they have a responsibility to do the work too. And so I, I think it's a I think it's a fascinating job. I'm very fortunate that I have the job. Um, and I just continue to do my best. Um, but a lot of the questions that you asked today, Charles, are, are excellent questions, especially about curriculum and how to, how to set goals and things like that. These are things that, um, at my university may be set in stone a little bit and we need to get a chisel and start hammering, hammering away at them, start making a dent. And Nat, Nat and I are talking about this quite a bit about how to Absolutely. how to make change and how to do things differently. So, yeah. what I meant, George, when I said the interesting thing is, I, I I thought I was a pretty good coordinator. I'm sure you were, and I enjoy it. I I enjoyed it. You know, creating you know um, an environment for teachers and students. What I said that wasn't interesting is that I, I should have just said if you're a real if what you want to do is be in the classroom or do your research. Don't take the coordinatorship job is what I should have said because it's a lot of responsibility, have to do a lot of things. That's what I really meant. It wouldn't be interesting maybe for that kind of person. But I think like me, I I've I, I been like trying to say to the school, give me that mm. job. I can do that job. I can do that job better than I can do research. Yeah, a lot, a lot of it is admin and a lot of it is supporting yeah. the teachers and problem solving and doing what you can um, when things pop up to ameliorate, you know, anger or or issues that are coming yes. from the office. And um, right, I think Nat and I are pretty good at it. We do our best. And I think that's the, yeah. the challenge of it. We take a deep breath and smile right. and laugh and say, okay, let's go after this one. And we continue on. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm saying that I, I should have really said that there's a certain, I think, person who is a best fit for a coordinator sure. job is what I meant. And the universe – I mean, we need to end this, right, because <laughs> it's been a really interesting conversation. But what I see so often is that the, in, the university will put somebody into an admin or coordinator position based on their research qualifications. That's a disaster. That can be, and, that can be a real problem. Yeah, and you know – yes, and I mm. see it a, a lot of the time. But anyway, okay, well, we're at a really, really long podcast at an hour and uh, 20 minutes. So listen, I want to say thank you to both of you for your time. Um, I enjoyed this immensely. It was great. Oh, thank um, you very much. Very interesting. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Got some insights, and I hope that the listeners uh, appreciate, you know, um, what you guys have shared with us. So I just want thank to say you, thank you very much. George and Nat. Thank you, Charles. Yeah. And this is uh, Two Teachers Talking, and everybody knows where to find us. And um, thank you very much, gentlemen, and have a you good too, Charles. evening. You too. Thank you. Bye, guys. Sure. Bye. Bye.